Our Father, we are a people who recognize that the world in which we live is our Father's. That though there be a prince of darkness that continues to to vex us and to uh, trouble us on our way to uh, to an eternity of felicity and bliss, this is still our Father's world. He is the one that controls all things, including the great enemy of our souls. And so, Father, we come to yield before you once again. We come to bow before the God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. And we pray, Lord, that more and more we'll get a sense of the, of the magnitude of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We come to you this morning in no other righteousness than that righteousness that is Christ's that has been imputed to us by faith. Our Father, we do thank you for the, uh, the special weekend that we've enjoyed. It is a time to remember how, how blessed we are as a people, as a land, as a nation, as families. So many of our families, Father, have such health to them. Not to say that all of us do, but so many do, and we're grateful for that. And we pray that those families that struggle even this very minute that you will grant fresh supplies of grace to bring them to the place of health and unity. Father, we're concerned about what's happening in the Ukraine right now. We have friends there, so many of us do. And we pray that you will guard your church there and that you will um, make this time a time where the church of Jesus Christ can shine. All those Christians that we've met, that have been in our church, that have sung to us and have lived in our homes, protect them, O oh God, and give them what they so desperately long for, a country where freedom uh, is enjoyed. Father, thank you for the ways that you have um, provided for our church. This is a generous people that call themselves Grace Evan, and I pray that you will stir up within us a greater desire to live even more and more simply so that we can give more sacrificially, not so this church can have more money, but so that we can invest more in the accomplishment of the Great Commission. Father, as Jesus left, he left behind for us instructions, marching orders, and we pray that this church might be found accomplishing and committed to those. Now, Father, uh, prepare us for a time of the taught word And might that be something useful to us as we find ourselves stimulated to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Now, take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me. It's going to be hard to find. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And let me read to you. Well, let me quote for you my text, which many of you could quote as well. It simply states this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Did anyone uh, notice the title of my sermon this morning? Phlogiston? Does anybody know what phlogiston is? I, I hope not, because... 
I want the privilege of, uh, of telling you what phlogiston is, but it'll come a little bit later. So bear with me. As most of you already know, we have begun a book study in the book of Genesis. It's not going to be a verse-by-verse study, but it is going to be a thematic study of the book of Genesis. Well, if you're going to study the great themes of Genesis, when you open the book, you come face-to-face with one of the great themes, not only of Genesis, but of the entire Bible as well. It is this claim on the part of Genesis 1-1 that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I have sought to be brief. We've confined this to three Sunday mornings, and this is the last of the three. Um, Very honestly, I have reservation in doing what I'm doing this morning and in those previous mornings. If I could, I would avoid this. But I have no such luxury, ladies and gentlemen, because I must defend the, the claims of this text in the teeth of all that evolution is seeking to do to undermine the truth of this claim in Genesis 1-1. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I, I, um, I don't like to use this pulpit like this, but I'm hoping that you will be encouraged. I'm hoping that you will, uh, if you've had things tossed around in your brain for some time, that, that the information derived here in this three week series, that it'll help you derive a greater confidence in this book that you will know that when you pick it up, that what you have in your hands is the very mind of God in print, so that you will know that this is not some kind of piece of religious literature that's to be set on your shelf and ignored. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's what's being done to it. And one of the ways that it is, that's being done is through the attacks made on this book by evolutionary science. Therefore, I thought it would be sheer cowardice on my part to ignore this glorious theme that is found not only in Genesis 1-1, but throughout the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, if you reject creationism, you're not only rejecting Genesis 1 and 2. There are countless passages where this same claim is made that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So I hope you understand my motive. I'm somewhat reluctant, as I've said. Very frankly, I'll be glad when this is over so that we can move on to things that I love to do uh, in handling this book. But in the interest of your confidence in this book, I think it's necessary for us to spend this time addressing these issues. Last week, we looked at fossils, paleontology, which is something that most of us know a little bit about. I mean, as a kid, we all found a fossil and took it to school, or if we didn't, somebody in our class did, and so we looked at this fossil. So we know a little bit about that subject, but today we are uh, entering a field that is much more foreign to most of us. And it's much more difficult to explain. It's much more difficult to understand. It is the, 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 um, the world of microbiology. Now, gang, 
my, there, this is going to be very academic this morning. And it's going to leave some of you really nonplussed. And, and that's really why I'm so reluctant to do it. But ladies and gentlemen, the attacks that are being made on this book are not so much spiritual as they are academic. We are being made to think that to become a Christian, that we somehow have to commit intellectual suicide. And we're being made to look at some kind of buffoons as people who simply learned this, you know, at the lap of our grandpappy way back in the woods of the south. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that, that is a caricature. But to defend our position, we have to engage in the marketplace of ideas. And that means that we have to gird up the loins of our minds. And you're going to have to do that this morning. And I know it perhaps will be somewhat stale for some of you. I, I'm sorry about that. But in the interest of the confidence that your soul can have, you must do this. We've all got to rally and give it the old college heave-ho, you know, and, and, um, and, and engage some of this. N- not so that we can argue, but so that you can be confident that when you put this thing in your lap, you know what you've got. In these black words on the white page, you've got God's mind outlined for you. So, here we go. Microbiology. <laughs> let's go to... Aren't you glad you came today? You know? Let's go and let's hear about test tubes. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll avoid test tubes. But, um, gang, um, before 1950... Hardly anything was known about the molecular basis um, of life. Uh, Back then, back in the 50s, it was still possible for evolutionists to hope that advances in science would reveal a number of intermediates. You know what intermediates are. Those are the things, those gradual evolutionary stages upward. Uh, It was still possible for them to hope that a number of intermediates would be found in the world of microbiology between chemistry and cell, or between non-life and life. The hope was that though the evidence was not found in the fossils, it wasn't found there, but maybe microbiology will deliver us. Maybe microbiology will show us these these successive intermediate steps uh, between non-life and life. Because paleontology has failed us, maybe microbiology will deliver us. But instead of revealing a multitude of transitional forms of those intermediates, molecular biology has served only to emphasize the enormity of the gap between chemistry and the cell, between non-life and life. Not only that, it has also shown that in terms of their basic biochemical design, no living system can be thought of as being ancestral to any other system. Which is, of course, what Darwin taught. But has been overturned again and again in biology, microbiology, and in other fields, morphology, paleontology. Gang, if the molecular evidence that is available today had been available a century ago, 
evolution would probably not be around today. The idea, listen, the idea that advances in biological knowledge are constantly confirming evolution is categorically false. In fact, it's just the opposite. But that's what we're being made to believe. That as science marches on, evolutionary theory is being, all the doubts are being removed. The very opposite is true, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I want to spend your time and mine defending what I just said. I want to defend my claim that that idea that modern biological science is confirming evolution at every step. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing further from the truth. It's just the opposite. And I want to prove my statement. I'm going to, I'm going to give you two examples. Both are drawn from the, the world of microbiology. The first one is the now famous Miller-Urey experiment. Which, if you've never heard of it, I, I, I dare say you were probably taught it. It can be found in just about, in virtually every biology book in America. That Miller-Urey experiment uh, can be found in every textbook of biology in America. Because it is, a, it is an experiment that addressed the origins of life. You know, that's a big issue. Okay, I hear all this evolutionary stuff that you're talking about, but where did life first come from? How did it first begin? And the Miller-Urey experiment addressed that. Now, gang, Darwin never extended his theory to include the origin of life. Nor did he ever claim that, um, that his theory could explain the origin of life. But the implications were there. That is, if you kept moving it back further, far and far and far and uh, further and further back, that you would be able to describe the origin of life uh, from an evolutionistic model. So the origin of life remained quite unexplained until the early 1950s, when Stanley, Stanley Miller and a Nobel Prize-winning chemist Harold Urey at the University of Chicago won a Nobel Prize for their work in this area of the origin of life in the now famous Miller-Urey experiment. Now, here's what they did. They sought to recreate an atmosphere that they, would, they thought would simulate the atmosphere of the early Earth before life. That is, this prebiotic soup. They sought to recreate the environment that would have been true in the early atmosphere before life ever existed. Uh, it was a combination of several things, but methane gas, ammonia. And they, they, they put these gases in a little closed contraption. The pictures of it are in your biology books. Um, and they, they ran an electric shock through this collection of gases. As a result of running that electric shock in there, they, they, they created, or the result, the product was glycine. 
Glycine is an amino acid, ladies and gentlemen. Um, amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Now, gang, a living cell comparing glycine to a living cell is like comparing the complexity of New York City with Olive Branch. The, 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 the cell is, includes protein and RNA and DNA and all this business. What they produced was glycine, not life. They produced an amino acid, not life. Do you understand that? Amino acid is a building block of a protein. And proteins are found in a cell, but it's not life. But on the heels of that experiment, the scientific community was quick to suggest that the rest of the process was very easily foreseeable. Today, glycine. Tomorrow, proteins. And from there, on and on and on it would go and we'd have life. But ladies and gentlemen, that experiment produced glycine. Nothing else. Well, were the scientists correct in their enthusiasm? Ever since the 1960s, that experiment has been attacked on all sides. A um, Philip Abelson, who is a geophysicist, excuse me, a, geo, a geophysicist uh, at the Carnegie Institute, said this. What is the evidence for a primitive methane ammonia atmosphere on Earth? The answer is... There is no evidence for it, but there is much evidence against it. That is, this prebiotic soup that they tried to produce, that they thought simulated the Earth's early atmosphere. <laughs> Sorry, fellas. Since 1977, the view that the Miller-Urey experiment was, fall, was, was um, wrongly conceived has become Near consensus among geochemists. John Cohen writes in Science Magazine in 1995, many origin of life researchers now dismiss the 1953 experiment because the early atmosphere looked nothing like the Miller-Urey simulation. But they won a Nobel Prize for that. And ladies and gentlemen, it's still in virtually every biology textbook in America today. In 1998, National Geographic hailed that experiment. It's been disproved. Why would you continue to promote it in a biology textbook when any chemist worth his salt knows that it's false. I, I don't know the answer to that question, ladies and gentlemen. I do know this, that evolutionary science is desperate to answer the question of the origin of life. And this is the best they've got up to date. Francis Crick, who is himself a Nobel chemist, writes in his book, Life Itself, he, he writes this, 
we seem forced to have to contradict one of the basic axioms of modern biochemistry in envisioning the origin of the cell. An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. A miracle. Now, there's an interesting suggestion. But you see, if you've got a miracle, you've got to have a miracle worker. And that is unthinkable. That is for evolutionists. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that one of the basic tenets of evolution concerning the origin of life is the Miller-Urich experience that has been debunked. And yet it is still being taught. It is still contained in the biology textbooks of your children. And no geochemist worth his salt believes that it's the truth. That's my first support of my claim that, that biology is continuing to support. That's my first. Here's my second one. Um, because Darwinism has taken some lethal shots from an associate professor of biology or uh, of biochemistry at Lehigh University. Uh, whose name is Michael Behe. The, 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 the core of what Michael Behe has found is, is discussed under this term. You might want to hold on to this term. Irreducible complexity. <laughs> Did you get that? All right, listen. This is a quote from Charles Darwin. Darwin says this. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed... Excuse me. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. That's what Darwin said. If you can show me a system, a biological system, that can be proved that it didn't evolve from the simpler to the more complex, my theory is finished. It's washed up. <laughs> well, thanks to Dr. Behe, the theory is washed up. Gang, Behe has demonstrated and has written in, in scientific journals that in his study of five uh, structural systems, here they are, the blood clotting cascade, the cilium, the bacterial flagellum, the intracellular transport system, and the immune system. In those five systems, he has demonstrated that those are five examples of systems that could not possibly be explained by some kind of gradual um, ascending modification. He summarizes what he's talking about. If you'll, if you'll bear with me one more second, I think I can illustrate it. Here's what irreducible complexity means. Systems, let's take the immune system, systems whose function depended upon the interaction of many parts and wherein the removal of any part effectively shuts down that, the function of the system, those systems could not possibly have been built up step by step, which means an end to gradualism. You hear what he's saying? Systems that are made up of lots of parts that depend on each other, and if you remove one part, 
The system breaks down. Those systems could not possibly have been built up slowly in these series of uh, intermediates. Now, gang, if, you, if I've lost you, wake up. Because the illustration that he uses is brilliant. It's a mousetrap. This mousetrap is irreducibly complex. The mousetrap consists of five parts. There's the platform. There's the spring. There's the hammer. There's the holding bar. And uh, then there's the catch. Five parts of a mousetrap. Now, tell me, how many parts of this mousetrap do you need to catch a mouse, to successfully catch a mouse? How many parts? Five. If you remove one of these parts, this thing won't work. Because all five parts working interdependently are needed to produce a successful result. Take away a part and you've ruined the system. What Behe is saying is that the mousetrap is an example of irreducible complexity. And all these systems in life, ladies and gentlemen, have to have all the parts there at the same time. Not gradually evolving upward. Folks, how could complex biological systems be gradually produced? They can't. Now, can I read you Darwin's quote just one more time? He said, if it could be demonstrated that a complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Mr. Darwin, Dr. Behe has trumped you. I want to read you, and, and, and guys, I know it's hard to be read to. I don't like to read. But I just want to read you a couple of comments from this Dr. Behe. I mean, they are acerbic. By the way, Dr. Behe is no Christian. He doesn't claim to be a Christian. Listen to what he says. The result of these cumulative efforts to investigate the cell... To investigate life at the molecular level is a loud, clear, piercing cry of design. The discovery rivals those of Newton and Einstein. The magnitude of the discovery, listen, the magnitude of the discovery gained at such great cost through sustained effort over the course of decades would be expected to send champagne corks flying in labs around the world. This triumph of science should evoke cries of eureka from 10,000 throats, should occasion much hand-slapping and high-fiving, and perhaps even be an excuse to take a day off. But no bottles have been uncorked, no hands slapped. Instead, a curious, embarrassed silence surrounds the stark complexity of the cell. When the subject comes up in public, feet start to shuffle, and breathing gets a bit labored. In private, People are a bit more relaxed. Many explicitly admit the obvious, but then stare at the ground, shake their heads, and let it go at that. Why does the scientific community not greedily embrace its startling discovery? Why is the observation of design handled with such intellectual gloves? The dilemma is, 
that while on one side is labeled intelligent design, the other side might be labeled God. No celebration in the scientific world, ladies and gentlemen, because the implications are unthinkable. I got one other quote from Behe. Molecular evolution, which is what uh, the evolutionists have been looking for, molecular evolution is not based on scientific authority. There is no publication in the scientific literature that describes how molecular evolution of any real complex biochemical system either did occur or even might have occurred. There are assertions that such evolution occurred, but absolutely none are supported by pertinent experiments or calculations. Since no one knows molecular evolution by direct evidence, and since there is no authority on which to base the claim of knowledge, it can be said truly that the assertion of Darwinian molecular evolution is merely bluster. Darwinism simply cannot account for the molecular structure of life. And thus, this theory lies in shambles, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, let's make sure that we understand the difference between a theory and a law. You know, you've got laws, like the uh, law of gravity and the second law of thermodynamics. Let's make sure we understand that. Um, here's, a th- here's, here's an example. My name is Young, and I drive a Jeep Grand Cherokee. My father's name was Young, and he drove a Jeep Grand Cherokee. I know a guy by the name of Steve Young, and he drives a Jeep Grand Cherokee. And I want to suggest to you that everyone whose name is Young drives a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Now, I'm free to assert that theory. But all you have to do to disprove my theory is find one person by the name of Young who drives a Jeep Grand Cherokee, who drives something other than a Jeep Grand Cherokee, and my theory is washed up. Ladies and gentlemen, evolution has always been a theory. It has never been a law. But tell me, how are your kids being taught? How is it being taught in the public school system of today, ladies and gentlemen? How is it being taught on the university campus? Our school children are being exposed as well as the general public and bombarded with the fact of evolution. In 1959, the centennial of the publication of The Origin of the Species, in a, um, in a gathering of evolutionists from all over the world, I think there were 2,000 of them there at the University of Chicago, Sir Julian Huxley stood before that august audience and said this, The first point to make about Darwin's theory is that it is no longer a theory, but a fact. That, my friends, is bluster. No, 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 it's worse than bluster. It's fraud. Utter fraud. Now, for the moment you've all been waiting for, what is phlogiston? (laughs) Gang, do you remember, maybe, I mean, you, you were taught this, I'm sure, but back in the 1500s, there was a, medieval astronomers had a theory of the heavens known as the Ptolemaic theory. 
uh, Ptolemy suggested that the earth was the center and everything revolved around that. Then comes Copernicus. And Copernicus suggested, no, 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 no. It's a different model. It's a heliocentric model. The sun is at the center of everything. He was put in jail for that, ladies and gentlemen. The idea that the earth was the center of the universe was so ingrained that even the astronomers who discovered the error of their studies would not consider the alternative. You know that story, don't you? Well, in the 1700s, there was another piece of embarrassment, this time in the world of chemistry. And it had to do with the theory of combustion or the phlogiston theory of combustion, which taught that substitutes, that, excuse me, that substances lost something in combustion. Phlogiston was the supposed material and principle of fire, but wasn't fire itself. All combustible bodies contained, contained a, a common material called phlogiston, which escaped in combustion. Through further investigation, ladies and gentlemen, the theory of phlogiston was discovered to be the very opposite of the, of the true nature of combustion. The theory was a total misrepresentation of reality. Phlogiston didn't even exist. But its existence was firmly and rigidly, and rigidly defended for a hundred years. One professor says this, his name is Butterfield. The last two decades of the 18th century, 1780-1790, give one of the most spectacular proofs in history of the fact that able men who had the truth under their very noses and possessed all the ingredients for the solution of the problem, the very men who had actually made the strategic discoveries were incapacitated by the phlogiston theory from realizing the implications of their work. Ladies and gentlemen, may I say to you that in the 21st century, we have our own virgin, version of the phlogiston theory. And it's called macroevolution. And the evidence is right under their noses. It may be of some interest to you that literally dozens of scientists around the world, not particularly Christians, have gone on to repudiate the theory of evolution. In a French magazine, uh, Science et Vie, Science and Life, a French magazine, Science and Life, an article appeared about 15 years ago, and the title of the article was this, Should We Burn Darwin? In that article, there was one sentence that stated this. The classical theory of evolution, in its strict sense, belongs to the past. Tell me, why are they still teaching it to our children? I think you know why. And I, for one, ladies and gentlemen, am angry about that. I've saved my favorite quote to the last. I love this one. And with this, we close. It comes from Dr. Colin Patterson, who was the senior paleontologist at the British Museum of the British and Natural History Museum. He said this in 1981 in a lecture series. He said this 
before the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Dr. Patterson had traveled around the country and he'd appeared before several groups of evolutionary scientists and he had been saying the same thing. Maybe this is his last speech, I don't know that, but at this speech before the American Museum of Natural History in New York, he says this and I quote, Can you tell me anything you know about evolution? Any one thing that is true? He goes on. I tried that question on the geology staff at the Field Museum of Natural History, and the only answer I got was silence. I tried it on the members of the Evolutionary Morphology Seminar at the University of Chicago, a very prestigious body of evolutionists, and all I got there was silence for a long time, and eventually one person spoke up and said, I do know one thing. It ought not be taught in high school. But it is being taught in high school. And it's being taught as a fact that allows people to explain away Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. My dear friends, if there's anything good that comes out of this little three-part series, I hope it will be something like this. I hope you who are bought with a price who have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I hope you will walk out with a new confidence that the God who made it possible for your sin to be forgiven is the same God who created Father, I do pray that you'll use these, these cogitations, whatever they are, Lord. I pray that you'd use them to encourage your people. I pray that they might never again live in an, an intimidated by some bluster about some facts that are not facts. And Father, though we, um, We find great solace in knowing that there is such scientific support for our position. It is not science in which we find our confidence. It is in your word. And when your word speaks about science, it speaks truly and accurately and reliably. But, Father, we know that it's not a science book. It's not a history book. It's not a book about philosophy. It's a a book about redemption. A book that outlines how it is that a sinful man like me 
could find forgiveness before a God of infinite holiness. A God whose eyes are too holy to even look upon my iniquity. A God who will never permit me in his presence in my own merit. But a God who has provided a perfect substitute for a sinner like me. Jesus Christ, the sin-bearing Savior. And so, Father, might the end result of our deliberations be a greater love for the thrice holy God. Might we walk out of here knowing that there is reason to believe, a confidence that what we have fixed our eternities upon is unchangeable, it is sure, it is truth. Father, if you have led people here today who have not yet met the Savior of ours, might some of this information go a long way to open their eyes to see the great beauty of our Savior. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.